Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. Good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. I know it's not New Year's Day, uh, but it has been exactly one year since this day last year, so <laughs> Happy New Year. Um, but it is an opportunity to start over, right, and like kind of map out where you want to go this year a little bit, um, time to reflect on the year that just passed. Um, anyway, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible or if you need a Bible, I believe we have some ushers that can help pass these out to you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible and you'd like to, uh, you can visit a hotel and take it out of the drawer, or, <laughs> or you can take one of these home. Um, Luke 15, you can scroll, tap, whatever you want to do to get there. I'm going to turn and scroll. I got all kinds of things going on. Here we go. Uh, Boog thought, Boog, for those of you who don't know Boog, Boog is uh, the teaching and leading pastor here, <laughs> and uh, he thought it'd be good for us to go through some essential passages in the Scripture, um, things that we ought to know, essentially at least be familiar with if we're following Jesus. What are some passages that are in the Scripture that would be sort of essential that when you start to hear it talked about, you would say, oh yeah, I know that one. Yeah, that's familiar. Um, and I know there's some, probably some good Baptists out there that are like, it's all essential. You know, it's all, come on. How can you pick and choose? Uh, well, the idea is that there are actually some scriptures that are more revelatory uh, about the character of God, I think. Uh, and so we're going to kind of stick to, in the New Testament, what are these passages? And uh, Boog gave me a few different options. So you go to the next slide. Uh, to teach from, and it was all under the heading of the teachings of Jesus, and he said, Sermon on the Mount, part one. You know, I have like a limited amount of time to share with you guys, and it's like, uh, I could preach like a, at least for an hour on the first two verses, and then uh, Sermon on the Mount, part two, no small thing to swallow, and then the kingdom of heaven, we did like a summer series on that, and then uh, the good Samaritan, which was the, probably the next one on my list, like... Uh, because it talks about who is your neighbor, and I would argue that we live in a time where we're really confused about who our neighbor is, um, there's, there's so much going on. I mean, I just, well, I wake up to like bad news on CNN every morning, I swear. It's like CNN, my little flash comes up like X amount of people lost their lives in this terrorist activity. Um, it, and so I think if anything, we do need to be reminded about who our neighbor is and that we are all on this little rock in the universe together. And, uh, but the one I went with is lost and found is what it's labeled. In. And I liked this one because it just kept coming up in my life over the last year and a half and I felt like it's just still close to my heart. And I know some of you are gonna be like, didn't you just preach on this? Or you're gonna be like, I don't remember what was said last week. <laughs> so... I feel like I'm on safe ground here because um, I don't really even remember what I said about this uh, the first time, which is not true. But uh, 
But basically, this is where my heart was right now, and I want to go into this. So I didn't know how to choose, so I went with the one that was closest to my heart. And what was cool is as I was studying this last week, uh, something new came up again. And it, was, it wasn't new because I'm sure it's been thought about or said before, but it was another piece that kind of reinforced something I was thinking about with regard to this passage. Uh, but it's a parable. There's actually three parables in this chapter. And when you're reading a parable, you got to remember it's a, it's a placing beside. That's what parable means. So it's a story that is placed beside something that, something that is happening in the world. You follow me? These are, these are good things just to know um, if you want to get an A in Bible class. There's like the parable is the story about something that's happening. And so I think Jesus is placing the stories that he tells beside what he's doing in the world, okay? He tells a story, and that story reveals something that is happening in the world. And I would argue most of the time it's about the kingdom of God uh, and what he's doing in, in bringing God's and announcing God's rule and reign. So I'm not sure how you all were raised, and I've got my parents in the back, so I've got to be careful about what I talk about here. Uh, but I was raised in church, and one of the things that was particularly, particularly powerful in terms of getting me to behave was shame and guilt. Anyone? Um, shame and guilt. I, I remember feeling particularly ashamed of my behavior at times. And that, of course, led to a tremendous amount of guilt. Um, it's just a dual package that kind of comes. And if I misbehaved, I was punished, which I would argue is a pretty standard and necessary uh, sort of response, right? Um, but if I behaved well, then sometimes I would be rewarded, right? Uh, and once again, I think that is needed. You want to reward good behavior, reinforce it, and you want to punish and curb bad behavior. Pretty standard way of understanding the world, especially parenting. So if I have a problem with this, then I have to figure out how to do parenting differently because this is what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, my kid does something good, and I'm like, yes, cheer, cheer, cheer. Here's a candy bar. And then if they do something wrong, no, no, angry, angry, you know, isolate them for a little while or, you know, whatever form of punishment that, uh, that you're up for uh, to a standard, right, that is not abusive. Uh, but for instance, living here in the United States, your reward for not breaking the law is your freedom, right? If you do break the law, there's a couple consequences here and there, and one of them can end, eventually end up in you losing that. You get incarcerated, right? Or you get taxed, you get fined, you get all these kind of like various punishments for not following the law. So we're going to look at this whole chapter of Luke 15 this morning, and uh, sometimes it's just good to read the Bible through. Um, it, it, it remarkably doesn't happen in a lot of non-denominational churches, uh, but in sort of the more mainline, they just sit, they'll read the text all the time. It's part of the liturgy, as they call it. Um, but these words, this is a sacred text, and we're going to read through it. And uh, here's a couple things I just want you to keep in mind as we read it. Um, you may have walked in here this morning. reflected recently while your cell phone was charging. It's the only time you have time to reflect. Uh, but with this question, 
I, I don't know, I don't know if there could be a good relationship between God and I. I'm not sure. And I find that this is one of the, the greatest problems we deal with. And this morning we're going to talk about your relationship, my relationship with God and to God. Even if you didn't know you had one, <laughs> you have a relationship to God. You have a relationship with God. Uh, you might not even be aware of it. So I want to read this passage. Then I want to make some observations about what this means for our relationship to God, even if you didn't know you had one. And then ultimately, I want you to leave here with hope. I want you to leave here feeling freer than when you walked in. Does that, does that sound good? I mean, there's, I'm telling you, there's a reason why people called this good news when they first heard it. Um, so you, the shame and the guilt... That's not what I want you to leave here feeling. What I want you to leave here feeling is freer and having hope. So here's what we're going to do. It's going to take about five minutes, you guys. And you know me. Sometimes I like to interject some things here and there, so it could be longer, uh, to read this whole deal. Five minutes. Five minutes. Uh, this is good news. So I'm going to read it, then we'll talk about it. Uh, I'll read it just off here. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I want to stop here, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Then Jesus told them this parable. Uh, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Okay, I've already lost uh, my ability to relate to this passage. Um, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. <sighs> so happy. <laughs> I've got a, got a dirty old sheep on my shoulders. Uh, and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors. He like sends out a mass text. Guys, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons, all of a sudden, who do not need to repent. Next slide. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Huh? Doesn't she light a lamp? Where's my flashlight on here? Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the whole house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, <laughs> she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice for me, I have, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Next slide. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. Now let's suppose that 25 cents equaled like $6 million back in that day. Um, and he has 50 cents. This is, and let's suppose I'm the father. And I give, I divide my estate, and I give one to this wayward sheep, and I give one to my other son. That's what it means to divide, right? It wasn't that he divided it, kept half for himself, and then gave half to the other son. He gave 
his inheritance to both sons, right? You follow me? Not long after that, the younger son, the dirty old sheep, got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. This is already a messed up story in the Hebrew tradition because Jews would not hang out with pigs, nor would they probably, uh, you know, hire themselves out to foreigners. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. This is like the lowest of the low point, right? I'm eat- I-, I want pig food. Pigs are super unclean and unhealthy, and I want pig food. Uh, but no one gave him anything. Let's- next slide. When he came to his senses, and I'll argue about what that means, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what's the conclusion? So make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Next slide. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came to, near the house, he heard music and dancing. There's a full-on rave going on. You hear like the, <laughs> you know, and he's kind of like coming back to the house and, and he's thinking, what is going on? So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf, fattened calf, because he has him back safe and sound. Next slide. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Really? Uh, you, nev- yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my, my friends. And just real quick, when he divided his estate, who was in charge of it? The younger son got half and the older son got half, right? You never gave me, well, you gave me, uh, I guess, half of the inheritance, but um, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours he breaks his relationship, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him? And really, he should have said, you you killed my fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. (laughs) I've always read that in a different way. But this way, this week, I was thinking of it this way. Literally, actually, everything that the father has at this point belongs to the younger son. Because he divided his inheritance. So the son was having nothing of what was a part of the farm, all the assets, whatever money they had. It actually all did belong to the son. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. I had to kill that fattened calf and we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. 
He was lost and is found. Okay, there's a lot in there. I'll leave my sheep right here. Now, we have three different stories going on here. In my Bible, it says the parable of the lost sheep, and then it has that parable. It has the parable of the lost coin, and then it says the parable of the prodigal, which is the uh, wasteful son, the son that goes and wastes away his life uh, with reckless living, and then his brother, the parable of the prodigal and his brother. Um, but I, I would say we have misnamed these parables. <laughs> a story about a shepherd, we have a story about a woman, and we have a story about a father. Uh, there's so many passages in the Bible that end with a party or a wedding feast or a celebration. If you, if, there's so many stories that end with rejoicing. And, and here's the thing, who's the, who's the party for, I think about? Well, in most of the stories, it's for the lame, it's for the sick, it's for the outcast. It's for uh, those that don't have anything to offer. If you read the parables of Jesus, the parties are always for those that really don't deserve them. Uh, and even in one, he invites all these people of repute and, and uh, wealth and whatnot, and they don't come. <laughs> and so he's like, go out into the streets and find beggars and tax collectors and sinners and lame and invite them to the party. Uh, so this, let's go to the next slide. This story... Again, I wanted to stop here, but I'm going to stop here now. Um, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him. This is the message translation. I loved it. Uh, by this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation <laughs> were hanging around Jesus, uh, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled. Uh, possibly. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. I like this uh, interpretation. I know that all of you here are not necessarily of doubtful reputation, um, though there are some, No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but why are they so upset? Why are the religious people so upset that Jesus is hanging around people that we would say those are the people that he should hang around. He should be out there trying to, you know, convert and evangelize these people. Uh, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And I wanted to just do a quick teaching on that. Um, so we have a slide here. I want to go to the next slide. This is meals in the ancient Near East, and I would argue, and today. So all of you or some of you work. And what work is, is it's your time away from your family, your friends, things that you want to be doing, possibly. It's your sweat, and it is your literal energy, your life. That is what work is. Uh, it's not just that, but that is certainly what it is. Your time, your sweat, your energy, that is your life. That is, that is who, your existence. <laughs> your time is your existence, your sweat, your energy that is your existence, your life. Your money, you get money for your work, okay? You take your money, and so the money for your work is comparable to like work is to your life. So money begins to represent your life. This is why I think Jesus talked so much about money. Because what you do with your life matters. 
And if money is a representation of your life, then what you do with your life matters. This is just a short aside, but hopefully if you take anything away, this is one good thing to take away. So then you take your money and you buy food. Now food represents your life, your time, your sweat, your energy. You give that food to your guests, you give that food to your guests at a meal, you have given them your life, right? They have literally ingested your life. So when you invite people over for dinner, when you sit around a table with someone, you are sharing your actual life. You follow me there? It's not probably as logically laid out as I could have done it, but this is sort of the best I could do. Uh, With trying to let you understand, when he shares a meal with someone and treats them like old friends, he's literally giving these people of ill repute his life. So it's a big deal. Okay, so back to the, the first, the sheep. This sheep, I would argue, has done very little for me. It just lays there. We have the lost sheep. He leaves the 99 to go find this one, okay? 99 sheep. Who would not leave 99 sheep, brilliant animals as they are in the open country, right? (laughs) And then go find the one that he lost and then come back to find that he's lost 77 more sheep that have now scattered and gone wherever. Like, this is not a brilliant plan, okay? It's like, did he, why didn't you just put him in a pen? Or why didn't, you know, hey, called another shepherd over and be like, hey, can you look after these ones? Uh, my one idiot sheep got away. Um, <laughs> these 99 are all good. Uh, sheep are not particularly bright animals. Here's, here's something I want to let you in on this, in case you've read this parable and never thought of this. There is no such thing as 99 persons that need no repentance, I can't even think of nine people that need no repentance. I can't think of one person that needs no repentance, except for Jesus. He's a special case. 99, it does not exist. Jesus is using this as a rhetorical device, okay? He's using it to uh, kind of show, a po- make a point. But I want to go to the next slide. A lost sheep is as good as a dead sheep for the owner. Would you agree? I mean, it's not doing anything for him. It may as well be dead. Uh, In the second story, you have the lost coin, which is a dead asset, right? A lost asset, it's a loss, right? It's dead. And in the third, we've got a lost son who's a bit of a deadbeat. So these, I would argue, are parables of lostness and deadness. And in the first two parables, They end with a celebration and this statement, rejoicing in heaven about one sinner sinner repenting. And what we have done with these parables is we've made them about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Uh, and, And I would just ask, why? Why did we do that? And I would argue because, honestly, I don't think we really believe God would be so generous as to throw us a party without requiring something from us. We get hung up on that word repent to change our minds. But let's go, uh, let's go to uh, first, where is it? The coin. All right, coin. Change your mind. Don't be lost anymore. Do something. We could sit here all day. That coin's not going to do a thing, right? 
It's a coin. It has no consciousness that we know of. The sheep. You think the sheep's out there like, man, I just really blew it. I shouldn't have left. <laughs> what was I thinking? <sighs> I got to get back. I got to find that shepherd. <laughs> this, this is not a cartoon. I mean, but this is how we treat the passage. Would you agree? This is how we, oh yeah, we got to repent. That sheep. Because I think most of us make a connection that, well, God is obviously the father searching for the sons, trying to go out to them, rescue them. God is obviously that good shepherd that goes out and finds that lost sheep. And God is this woman who's searching for a coin. Um, Neither the lost sheep nor the lost coin do a single thing except hang around in their lostness. That's all they do. They just be lost. So in the first two parables, what commends us to the grace of God? It's not our goodness. It's not our moral fortitude. It's not even our decision to come back to the shepherd or to suddenly reveal ourselves in the sock drawer. It's our lostness, our deadness that commends us to the grace of God. And here's the thing. If you are living with an understanding of God as a being who only blesses you once you've achieved some high moral standard, once you've realized the error of your ways, once you've changed your mind, then you are living with a skewed understanding of God and how God works. If you live with an understanding of God that that says in your head, if I just try harder to be a good person and really achieve this moral level and spiritual improvement, then God will forgive me. Then he will throw me a party. Here's the thing. I didn't notice last time. Um, I don't have a slide for this. Who throws the party? The shepherd? The woman, right? Why are they throwing a party? Why? Because the sheep was like, I blew it. Let's celebrate. My sheep finally gets it. (laughs) Finally gets it. I'm not supposed to leave. I'm supposed to to stay. The coin, it finally figured out it wasn't supposed to be hiding from me. It's about time. I'm so I'm throwing a party for that. No. Why? Because I found. They were lost and I found them. The coin that I lost, I found my lost coin. It wasn't that my coin finally figured it out. It wasn't that my sheep finally figured it out. And I would argue, it's not because you finally figured it out either. The God figure throws the party because he found, not you changed. Not you repented. But he found, and we'll get more into this. If you think God's forgiveness, his relentless love depends on you, somehow leaving your sin behind you, having a change of heart, then you are dead wrong. It goes against these parables, and it goes against even what the Apostle Paul preaches to the church in Rome, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. The only ticket to get into the party is for you to be lost or dead. In Jesus' parables, it's the lost and the dead that are in on the festivities. Reread the parables if you don't believe me. And, and in, the, in none of these stories is there anything except the will of God that is portrayed as necessary to enter a new life of joy. Being lost, that's not redemptive. Being dead, that's not redemptive. Being repentant, that is not redemptive. None of that earns the grace of God. It is a celebration because you were found. Coins don't change their mind. Sheep don't have that kind of awareness. And I'm going to argue even the wayward son doesn't change his mind. He just schemed on a way to survive, in my opinion. There's not a single word in these about rewarding what we think should be rewarded or correcting what we think should be corrected or improving what we think should be improved. What we see in the parables is the grace, the saving determination of the shepherd, the woman, and the father to raise what was dead. The sheep was dead, the coin was dead, the son was dead. We're going to get to that. Scandalous. The last parable, the prodigal son, totally misnamed. As long as you focus on the human figure, which we would equate to being the sheep, the coin, and the lost son, as long as you focus the story there, we'll make it about something we do. It's not about what we do, but about the kind of God we're talking about here. And here's just an added bonus point. I want to go to the next slide. Uh, if we are the sheep, that would be you and me, then the good shepherd who searches is God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. The lost coin, we would say, is you and me, and the woman who searches is God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Lost sons are you and me, or uh, this can be interpreted a bunch of different ways, Israel and the Gentiles. Father who searches and runs uh, is God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Um, shepherds smelled, especially after they put sheep on their necks. Um, this was not like a really glamorous position to hold in that day. Uh, but that's where Jesus places himself in the role. He is also a woman. <gasps> that's hard. I, to me, I only say this because I think it's interesting that we could read these parables for however many thousands of years and still subjugate women. It's unbelievable. Amen? And of course, we can most identify with God as this loving father, unless, of course, you had an abusive father. But Jesus is telling these stories to reveal the kind of God that he is revealing in himself. He desperately wants to know how God, wants you to know how God feels about you. So, some points on the story of what I'll call the relentlessly loving father. Uh, starts off, Dad, I want you to be dead. It's pretty much what he's saying. Give me, give me some inheritance. So, goes off, wastes his money, he's dying, essentially. And it says he comes to his senses, which I would argue is not repentance. He just has an idea. <laughs> Here's what I'll do. Because when he comes to his senses, his first words are, how, do, how many of my father's servants are living better than this? Here's what I'll do. I'll go say this. Make me like one of your hired, make me like into a servant, 
Why? Because I need to live, and your servants are living better than I am right now. This is no, I, I feel awful about what I did, and if you would just uh, somehow take me back as your son. No, he's trying to earn his way back into just having a living to survive. So, this is what I'll say. I've sinned against you. Yes, you certainly did. I've sinned against God. Absolutely. No longer worthy to be called your son. Yes. In fact, in their culture, you were dead. You were, it's the words, you are dead to me, and that was literal. Okay? That was literal. That wasn't just like a figure of speech. You are literally dead to me. Uh, and in fact, what would be normal if you talk to people from that culture is for, if he were to return, for you to kill him. That would be what would be normal. I'm not exaggerating, because when people in the Near East hear about this story, if they've never heard it before, and they hear about a patriarch running, first they're thinking, a patriarch would never run, that's ridiculous, um, the, the story doesn't make sense. He would not run, servants would run for him. But then they think, they're trying to make sense of it, they say, oh, he's running out there to kill him. That's what they think. They literally would say, he must be running out there just to kill him. And then he doesn't kill him, and they think, oh, you know what, they're really, br this father, he is brilliant. He is going to seduce him into the town square and kill him in front of everyone. This is how their mind would work, and that would be natural, okay? Make me like a hired service. No, 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 I can't make you like a hired servant. You're dead. You can't earn your way back. So here's the actual story. Father sitting on the front porch, sees the son, and he runs. And before the son can get out his confession, which if you read it, what is not at the end? Make me like one of your hired servants. That gets dropped off. Before the confession, the father raises him from the dead. He puts his arms around him, kisses him. It's something you do. See, the... Here's the point. The confession, it's not something you do to earn forgiveness. Confession is not something you do to earn forgiveness. Just hear that. It's something to do to celebrate the forgiveness you've already received. He's like a sheep lost out there. He can't earn the forgiveness. Father raises him to life, and now it's party time. <laughs> festivities. Party is in full swing. Older brother comes in. He's the landowner. He's Mr. Responsibility. He's Mr. Bean Counter weighing the scales. Mr. Whiny. Uh, it's not fair. Um, he's like, what? You never did anything like this for me. And the older son says, oh, you know, this son of yours comes back and you kill the fatted calf for him. So the older son is dead now too. He, he breaks the relationship. This son of yours He's no brother of mine. That guy's dead. He breaks, he's in a hell of his own, right? He's inside the party in his own hell of bookkeeping and fairness, scales evening out, and the father comes out to plead with him like, dude, just go in there and have a drink and enjoy the fact that your brother who is dead is alive again. And that's the freeze frame this is how the parable has ended for 2,000 years. There is a party happening. Would you agree? God, the Father, goes out, goes down into what we would call outer darkness. He's not in, he's in the outer darkness, what we would often refer to as hell. And it even, it even says in the scriptures, right, 
Psalm 139, if I go to, to hell, you are there also. God is there with us. There is no point at which the shepherd who followed the lost sheep will ever stop following all of the damned even into hell. He will always raise the dead. This is good news. I mean, if you agree that this older son is frozen in time with God at his side, let's just look at what the father's words for him are. Again, you are always with me and literally everything I have belongs to you. When I gave out that money at the beginning and divided it, who was in charge of it? Literally everything the father was indeed the son's. You could have fattened up 20 calves and thrown parties, but you didn't do that, did you? Because you were living your, in your own personal hell of trying to earn something. So this is fantastic news. This is why Jesus says at the beginning of his great Sermon on the Mount, which I chose not to go all the way into, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not about one more thing you have to do to earn it or become worthy of it. It's simply, if you have no ounce of spiritual worth in you, there's a party going on. So what does this mean for you? As we close here, no matter where you are, God wants to raise you from the dead. He wants to put a beautiful ring on your finger, some comfy rainbows on your feet, a sweet robe from the montage around you. He wants to raise you from the dead, and his, he's relentless in his love for you. You are always with me, and everything I have belongs to you. So let's just suppose you're in a time of your life when you feel like you have no idea what you're doing. Your marriage fell apart, your house got foreclosed, that person you loved didn't love you back, you no longer know what you believe, that person very dear to you got very sick and it doesn't look good, you got belt, dealt a bad hand and you're wondering, where is God? You don't even know what that word God means anymore. Or if you believe it. Let's just suppose for a minute and really stretch our minds and pretend that we are in some way lost. The world doesn't make sense. You don't know which way is up or down, and I would argue we don't. We're on a sphere, so what's up here could be down somewhere else or to the left. As far as I know, there's no top to the universe. It's how it's set up. For much of my life, I was taught in Sunday school and church that Jesus wasn't just a moral teacher. He was God. And I'm not here to argue against that. But is it possible that Jesus was also fully human? And perhaps when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, that he was saying, look at my life. This is how to do the dance of being human. This is what it looks like. And it is good to be human. So I don't care if you're a broke, if you're addicted, divorced, had an abortion, murdered someone, ruined your life, abused your friends and family, or played by the rules your whole life. This is good news for you because his forgiveness is already yours. It already belongs to you. Let's go to this last slide. Just focus on that. It's already yours. So you can choose to live. I, was, I just read this quote from Jonathan Swift, Gulliver's Travels. May you live every day of your life 
And we're like, is that like a deep thoughts by Jack Handy kind of thing? Or <laughs> Deep thoughts, may you live every day. But may you live every day of your life, because here's the thing. Many of us are dead. Many of us are lost. May you live every day of your life. And I would argue that Jesus came to show you how to live. Not how to get out of here, not how to escape this place, but how we would pray that, that the place that we think is up there somewhere would come down here. May your will be done. May the world be ordered the way in right here as it is in the heavens, as we might call it. You can live the way he revealed, a way of love, centeredness, joyfulness. Just receive what is already yours. Let me pray. Jesus, Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit, we are grateful uh, that you have revealed so much to us about how you love us, about how we can't earn it. All we can do is receive it. Leaves this place today would feel lighter, freer, and have hope knowing that it's nothing that they can do or have done, but they just have to receive the love and the forgiveness that you have for them. That's there, it's for them, and they, they may not even know it. And I would argue many of us don't or can't believe it. So would you encourage us through the power of your spirit that, to believe this truth, that you love us and you forgive us. May we live into that with joy and hope and peace and freedom. In your name we pray, amen.